Welcome to Valpreneur Podcast channel. My very special guest today is Brian Clayton, who's the CEO of Greenfell. So welcome, welcome Brian to the show. John, thanks for having me on. It's great to be here, man. Cool, man. All right, so let's just dig into your bio a little bit because um, it's a kind of interesting kind of story. I don't think we've ever had had a, um, a lawnmowing company in our, in our podcast before, so we're interested to see how we go with that one. Um, but you co-founded GreenPal, an online marketplace that connects homeowners with local lawn care professionals. Uh, GreenPal has been called the Uber for lawn care by Interpreneur and has over 200,000 active users, completing thousands of transactions per day. Before starting GreenPal, Brian Clayton founded Peachtree, which is interesting because he used a accounting software program called Peachtree, um, in one of the largest landscaping companies in the state of Tennessee, growing to over $10 million a year in revenue, uh, before it was acquired by Lusa Holdings in 2013. Brian's interest in expertise related entrepreneurism, small business growth, marketing, bootstrapping businesses, and zero revenue, profitability, and exit. So that's an interesting um, interesting background. Um, and we had a bit of a chat before the show where, you, you know, you'll your sort of main motivation is to sort of share your ideas and, and, and you know, how you do things. So that's quite an interesting thing because you've got a kind of a mixture there, haven't you? You've got a mixture between a, a traditional kind of tools business and, and an online business. And I know a lot of people struggle with that, right? Yeah, you know, uh, I think uh, one of the best things you can do with your life is start a business because if you're doing it right, it'll cause you to evolve every three to five years into a completely new person. That's yes. definitely been the case with me. 20 years of business, I, I've had to change and adapt and grow. The business, the marketplace extracts that out of you. And one of those big shifts that I, I had to navigate was when I started my first landscaping business from just me and a push mower. And mm -hmm. then I grew it to me and 150 employees over a 15 year period of time. You know, I thought I knew there was everything to know about business. You know, I, I, I grew it to over 10 million in revenue and the business was acquired and here I am riding high, you know, and, and thinking that I had conquered the world. And, and then I thought, well, now I'm going to do something easy. I'm going to start a tech business. I'm going to start a mobile app. And boy, I didn't know what I didn't know. Uh, mm -hmm. It was a lot harder to get Green Pal, which is like the Uber of lawn mowing, to get yeah. this marketplace going uh, than I thought it was going to be. But just stuck with it, uh, didn't give up. And it was, we're an eight-year overnight success, uh, several hundred thousand people using our app to get their grass cut, doing over $20 million a year in, in revenue in the lawn mowing business. And and uh, I think the way we got to where we are is just, we just we didn't give up. We just kept working on the business, working on ourselves and learning from our failures and applying those learnings to make the product better and better and better. And so, yeah, navigating the transition from a blue collar type of entrepreneur to a tech entrepreneur was, was, a, was a tough one. But that's one thing I love about business is, is it challenges you, causes you to grow, causes you to level up. Yeah, it's interesting, actually, because when you talk about the Uber lawn care, it's like, let's say, look at taxi industry and, and the disruption there, because taxis never really got their act together in terms right. of, of doing anything. And I think I, I had the same thing with, I, I mean, I had a client, I was mentioned, I had a lawnmower client where we um, tried different kind of things for him and they can all fall back to the same old thing. Oh, we just do it this way, right? And all this sort of stuff. And I said to him, well, one of the things that I saw as a problem for him was he couldn't control his revenue. Like, he, you know, if it rained, he was doomed, right? He yeah. Work, right? Yeah. And, and so, and then because he couldn't be digging people's yards up on the lawnmower with all the mud and everything. So it was like you had to wait to grow. So then they'd be complaining, oh, the grass is growing, the slimes and tigers in there. And it's like, and I said, well, why don't you just charge a monthly fee? Like, just charge a monthly fee and you determine when you go and they know you're going to come. So there's no, like, you know, thing when you flatten your revenue. He thought that was a good idea, but he would never implement it. 
after two and a half, two years of doing it, he never implemented. And I said, do you realize you could have been getting normal reoccurring income by now and the business is worth something? But that little change, he couldn't handle, right? He couldn't do Something it. about the lawn mowing business attracts stubborn uh, entrepreneurs because you're right. The, you know, And I think it may be all small business owners. You get used to doing things one way and you don't want to change. You don't want to innovate. You don't want to evolve. And I think... I think it's going to come time in the next five to 10 years where every business, no matter what bit line of work you're in, you're going to have to be a technology business. Yes. You're going to have to think like a tech startup. You're going to have to adapt and, and, and adopt technology to run your business better because, you know, five years from now, nobody's going to want to uh, leave a check under the mat, leave a voicemail, uh, you know, have to deal with a paper invoice or, or have to like try to uh, wrangle you to come take care of the service for them. Like they're going to want the Uber like experience where you just push a button and magic happens. And if your business is not set up to deliver that, you're going to get left behind. That's like my current little mowing guy. Like he, he, he mows the guy next door. So every second week come on my place. Right. And so, and then no invoices come for a year. And it's like, what's going on here, dude? You got a building? Yeah, I'll build you. I'll build you. I have to turn down every time. So, what are you doing with this bill? And in the end, I said, look, I'll tell you what, I'll just pay you the same amount every week for a year to catch up. You know, it shouldn't be this difficult, but it, it is. And, yeah. you know, that's what our, our app has set out to solve is to make it make it easy, make it simple for both sides of the transaction. One thing about the lawn mowing business is that it's, it's low barriers to entry. And so it's a great way to kind of cut your teeth on starting a business. It's a great way to kind of cut your teeth on learning uh, the, the ins and outs of running your own little business. And so it attracts a lot of, of people who are just new to business ownership and they don't know these things. We're not taught these things in school. No. We're not taught things like bookkeeping and customer service and systems and processes. And so that's one thing that our app has set out to do is to, is to kind of demystify all that for lawn care services and give them like kind of like a business in a box almost. And all they have to do is to show up, do a good job for their clientele and everything just is handled for them. Yeah. And on the, on the other side of the transaction for homeowners, it's just a, a delightful, seamless way for them to get this chore done. But right. we focus on just this one chore. And they know, well, no, they know that's been done, they've been billed for it. And yeah, I mean, I think that that's the thing. I mean, this guy's been in business a long time and I know he survives. And I could think to myself, how can you even scale like this? If you can't handle the money, then you're never going to be able to. So you're always going to be doing it on your own. You'll never have another employee because that's you won't right. go to scale the money. And if you can't scale that's right. the money, dude, yeah. <laughs> getting these folks to understand the difference between working in your business and on your business is, is, is a hard lesson that I think every business owner has to learn. And, and there's a big difference between owning a business and being self-employed. And so like the guy you're talking about, he's more or less self-employed. He's got a pretty good job that he owns, mm -hmm. but there's a gap between that and running and owning your own business, having the systems and processes to where it hums like a will old machine. Mm -hmm. That's a gap that nobody teaches you. You have mm -hmm. to kind of learn it on your own. You kind of have to seek out people that are talking about this stuff and, and nobody talks about it. Nobody talks about, you know, like there's a great book, The E-Myth by Michael Gerber. Yeah. I, I recommend every entrepreneur read that because yeah. that's all that book is about is the difference between working in your business and working on your business. Well, I actually um, bought that book a long time ago because when I was, when I was a, one of my businesses, like you talk about, you know, change businesses every time. I think you automatically tank your business after 10 years because you get you need to change, right? Nowadays, technology tanks you instead. But, yeah, I actually, I, I used to give that book out to clients. Like, it's a free book. Um, back in the day when you had to buy it from Amazon or wait like six weeks for it, eight weeks, even now. 
I, and so, but then I signed up for them, right? So I signed up for this e-myth and I said, how much is it a month? It's like $1,800 a month. We're talking 20 years ago. So that wasn't cheap, right? Wow. And, and I'm going, okay, what do we do? And it's like, oh, we've got this 18 months worth of modules. And they were very well done, like, but they only spoon feed you so many modules so at a time because obviously they want to get your money. <laughs> so you get like three months worth for the first 1800 bucks. And I said, I, I kept the list. I said, marketing is around 12 months down the track. And that should like, be that should be class number two. we get to the marketing, and he goes, "Oh, that's the way it works." And and when you're at their foundation, it is. Um, but the reality is, no one's going to do that amount of work that they need to do to set the business up properly. Um, right. That twelve month period, and that's the tough bit. Is you know you've got to, in some respects, you've got to do that work, and you've got to do the marketing at the same time. You can't do the one thing and then the next. Well, their theory was you work through these modules. And you, and you get each bit right, and then you release your marketing, which, yes, would make sense. But the reality of the marketplace is 12 months is a long time. And yeah. you've got a runway of 12 months to not make any money for 12 months while they get their systems together. Um, I got bills to pay. <laughs> That's one of my, uh, I agree. Like, I think marketing has to be in the DNA of the business from the ground up day one. You know, it's like if you're inventing a new product from scratch or you're starting a traditional style of business, like you have to be thinking about marketing and distribution and how you're going to reach clientele from like day one, because at every successful business, small lar or, or large, like there's a marketing engine at its core and you got to be thinking about this stuff from day one. But the reality is like, there's a lot of stuff you got to be pretty good at to run your own business. You know, uh, one of my favorite analogies is like one of my favorite games growing up when I was, when I was a kid was Super Mario Kart. And, you know, you had five drivers you could choose from. You could have Bowser, Princess, Toad, Mario, Luigi. And every one of these drivers was good at one thing. Like Toad handled really well. Princess was accelerated really well. Bowser had like was the fastest, but he was slow off the line. But it was one driver, Mario, who was kind of half good at all these things. And he wasn't really, he didn't really excel at any one thing, but he was pretty good at all this stuff. So if you were like a beginner, you could like use Mario and like hang. And I think like in business, you kind of have to be Mario. You got to be pretty good at marketing, pretty good at innovation, pretty good at systems, pretty good at legal, HR, all these things you got to be kind of half good at. And that's what's going to get you for the, through the first two to, two to three years. Mm, yeah. And I think having that skill set or at least having the information, I mean, nowadays, you know, once upon a time, you couldn't Google this stuff, but now you can almost Google it and find out information pretty cheaply. So I think at the end of the day, it's, there's no excuse not to learn. And it's just no excuse. I want to learn it. Um, or they just sort of hope that they'll get someone else to do it and then rely on them and then find out that they don't really know what they're talking about. Because, I mean, my son, the tech is an interesting thing because we're in the tech business too. We developed a platform for, um, for authors, consultants, like anybody who creates content um, to create their own website system. And my son's come into the business and I'm teaching from ground up about, you know, different aspects of the business, like work in the business, work out the methodology, how you think about customers, marketing, all those things that you learn the hard way usually. <laughs> um, right. And I think that's the problem is that people don't want to learn it the hard way. They want to kind of skip over it. But the reality is those things, those lessons about pricing, for example, or, um, you know, figuring out what, you know, how to approach a customer in the marketing and all that kind of stuff. That's the things that people end up just, you know, get away from if they're good at one thing. So well, I've got a lot of clients who are good at content creation. And the reason we created this app was that because they had no clear direction, what they would do is just create a bunch of content and then try it, and then create a bunch of websites, <laughs> and then sign up for a bunch of software applications, 
and then just have a big, big sort of mess to deal with that never made any money because they had right. no structure. Um, a bit like lawnmowing, right? And, and, yeah. so basically, and But they love making content. So we created an application for them to be able to do all that easily, but then give them a, a framework to work around. So, okay, fill in the blanks and this will be your business. And then you've got that structure um, in it rather than try to figure it out along the way after make all those mistakes. And, you know, somebody has to be willing to innovate, improve, change to go through that framework you've made for them. And the sad thing is, is, most business owners aren't willing to do that. And I think you kind of have to be willing to do that to to get from six figures to seven figures, from seven figures to eight figures. You got to be willing to innovate and, and work on the business, not in the business. Mm-hmm. And the reality is, is like, you know, everybody talks about work-life balance and, you know, you, you're going to burn yourself out if you work out over 40 hours a week. That may be true, but I think there's another 40 hours a week of learning. Like you have to have a well-balanced diet of information and that could be YouTube, podcast, books, audio books, blog posts. You have to be filling your knowledge with all this stuff, like what you're talking about and being willing to implement it in your business to get to the next level. If not, you're just going to be self-employed for a long time. Yeah, and I think that's the danger is that if you get to a point where you can do all the work but no one else can, eventually you do burn yourself out even if you're making, because you can't you can't keep up the demand, you can't grow the scale of business. And that's right. I work on the principle that we do we do something, I do something, figure out how to do something, um, you know, maybe a new product or whatever, figure out how to do it, document it, and then get someone else to do it badly. Because they give it to me, they do a bad job of it. You expect that, right? You don't go in there, are they going to do a perfect job just like me? They expect to do it badly, coach them through it, and then go, look, goodbye. <laughs> you can have that job now because I'm not doing it anymore. Um, right. And I mean, I had, a, I had a employee the other day. She worked for me nine years, and we had a client that was a little less uh, desirable. Let's put it this way. They were um, they were saying a few things. They weren't really bad, but my, my girl's Filipini, so she, they're very sensitive, right? They're yeah. Very, in, that, in that particular area, they're very sensitive. If you accuse their work, they get really upset. And so he was a bit accusatory. Anyway, I said, well, okay, you've done this now. Tell him you've done it. So, oh, no, you do it. And I'm going, no, no, you're doing it because guess what? The client's getting fired anyway. Right. So he doesn't know that. I actually told him he's fired and he wouldn't leave, right? Because the other thing is I reckon is you've got to be prepared to fire a client. Um, Yeah, absolutely. You can't do that. (laughs) And the thing is, as the owner, as the founder, for a period of time, it's harder to teach somebody else and make somebody else do it, do it the way you've laid out for them just to do it yourself. Mm-hmm. And most founders fall into that trap of like, ah, it's just easier to do it myself. Mm-hmm. Well, you're never going to build a business with that mentality. You have to think processes, you have to think systems and routines, and you have to think delegation. Mm-hmm. And you have to go through like the high leverage activities of delegating these things out so people can focus on them doing better than you. And that's what hangs up, I think, a lot of business owners in any industry, particularly the one that I know is the lawn mowing business it hangs them up all, more 99 percent of the time mm. and uh you gotta focus on like uh, like one of my favorite books is the seven habits of highly effective people by dr stephen covey and he talks about activities that are important but not urgent yeah. and so in training somebody in delegating something to them is an important thing but it's not urgent like it's not burning the house down and so yeah. the problem is most time as business owners we're dominated by the things that that are urgent but not important and we stay there and we never build a meaningful business because we stay stuck in that paradigm and it's interesting actually like i've just finished their launch with tony robbins and one of the things that he would says is that people underestimate 
what they can do in 10 years, but overestimate what they can do in six months. So <laughs> true. And, and that's the thing, you know, like it's a slow progression of, of improvement. And I think that's like, I'm like that. I beat myself up a lot because I oh, could, have, could have been further than I thought. Like I could have got further on this. But then I look back at the amount of work I've got to do and what I've got to do on a day-to-day basis. So I'm going to squeeze this, almost this part-time job into the full-time job. The part-time job is working on the business and involving <laughs> it and making it work. And it's much like I'm two people. You know, that's like right. Each other out because you're saying, well, this person's got to, you know, you can't do that today. You got to do this, you know, like, and it's like these little little people in your head running around saying things trying to run this business. For me, yeah. For me, it was like Monday through Friday was working in the business, just holding it together. We're putting out fires, making sure customers were happy, making sure we had enough employees, making sure enough money in the bank, working in the business. And then Saturdays and Sundays, I would carve out just four or five hours maybe and work on the business. Pick one thing. Like we need a better employee training system. We need a better marketing system. We need we need a better customer follow-up system to, to make sure people are happy. Whatever it is, focusing on one process and trying to systematize it. Oh, one problem, where, huh? Okay. Yeah. It, and, and if you do that over and over and over again, it's the compound interest builds up. And next thing you know, five years later, you, you've got an actual business. And that's interesting because I have the same principle that I don't work for clients on weekends. Um, yeah. It's not like I don't work on weekends. I just don't do client stuff because the thing is you, you end up in a seven day a week thing where you actually never get any, you know, you, what are you going to do, work eight days, days a week now? Yeah. You can't get to that seven any longer yeah. than seven days and you just burn out real quick. I like that. Don't work for clients on Saturday or Sunday. Work work for yourself. Work for the business. Work to level the business up. And you have to delegate you have to carve out that time for what what, what Dr. Stephen Covey calls those high leverage activities. Yeah. It's the stuff that's that's important but not urgent. Mm. Yeah, you're right. And I think that's and it's really easy to get tied up with activity every day. You know, you're just burning putting out fires and stuff like that. I mean the thing that we have is it's still to this day, it seems weird, but Monday morning always seems to be disaster morning, right? You get up and, and Monday morning is always disaster morning. Yeah, <laughs> always is. Fix something. And I used to have uh, probably only in the recent few months, if that, I've actually blocked off Monday morning now. I don't make appointments on Monday morning at all. At all. And so what happens is that's now delegated for disaster time or fixing things yeah. up. Yeah. So I know it's going to happen. So I think almost making appointments with yourself. Um, to do with certain things is the way to go because then at the end of the day, then you then you blocked yourself and you can't then say, oh, hang on, I've got to do this important meeting. No, I didn't have one. <laughs> so right. you've got no excuse, right? You were prepared for it. Listen, it's going to happen. You, you're going to have to de- put out fires. Every business owner has to. You just also have to allocate that time to work on the high leverage stuff or else you're going to get caught in like this illusion of progress or, or, or like all of this fake work where you're working your ass off but you're not getting anywhere. You're not building a real business. And and next thing you know, you're burnt out and you can't make payroll. And yeah. everybody wants to be an entrepreneur until you can't make payroll. <laughs> and <laughs> I could buy a brand new car every two weeks when I had an IT business. Like I had this software accounting business and I had 23 staff. And I think we paid something like $60,000 in wages every fortnight. <sighs> and I'll tell you what, um, we made payroll, but I'll tell you what, it's not fun. Yeah. It's not fun when you when you can't make it. Of the day, right? It's like, oh, God, here it comes 20 grand. And it's like, and we had 23 staff, but, you know, it gets, you number. I don't, the thing with business, I think is people tell oh, you've got a big business, you know, it's just zeros. 
So you just yeah. take, you know, it's just zeros. You could, your zeros increase your problems. <laughs> it doesn't decrease that's, your problems, I reckon. <laughs> that's exactly right. But the business as the founder can, at least for me, can be the source of your purpose. It can be the source of why you get out of bed in the morning. And so you got 23 employees and they depend on you. And if you screw it up, they're not going to have a livelihood. And that's that can lend purpose to, to one's life. And that's one of the things I love about running a business is that it causes what I do on a day-to-day basis to matter and be important and to, and to lend an interesting storyline to my life. And and I, I like that. I don't take it lightly. And so I almost enjoy that aspect of it. Yeah. Yeah. I think it's like, I think you have to be a certain type of person to be an entrepreneur, right? You have to be, you have to be ready to take punches because sometimes, um, you know, most people take a punch and they're down in one fall. You know, that's it. <laughs> yeah. But it's one of the best things you can do with your life. I believe that. And I think the biggest thing with like COVID and stuff is that it's, it's, it's created a lot of people in the small business. Like it's there's been a surge in people because they had no choice. They lost their job or they had to pivot and stuff like that. So I think in some respects it's helped people sort of get out of ruts that they're probably in already. For a lot of people, like it didn't happen to you. It happened yeah. for you because yeah. it caused you to like – to start your own thing or, or maybe, maybe if you were in business and, and COVID like was detrimental to it, maybe it caused you to take the business down to the studs and rebuild it from the inside out. And, and it caused you to innovate and like, and believe it or not, five or 10 years later, you'll be glad it happened. Most every major crisis my, my, my businesses over the last 20 years have gone through, I always looked back and I was glad in a way that it happened. Like mm-hmm. my company, my landscaping company going through the more through the 2008 crisis, Oh, it, yeah. it hurt. It hurt really bad. And, and, uh, but it caused us to be leaner, more efficient, uh, get the fat out of the business. And that was the thing that enabled me to sell the company four years later. Mm, yeah. Cause it basically almost like a cleansing effect, right? <laughs> like, so um, tell me about the tech startup, right? Because I've been, I've been there. I've sort of like started that tech startup business. And another thing is to say, it's something that people don't really understand um, and I think, as you say, people need to understand that they're in the tech business now. It's almost like um, McDonald's is in the real estate business. And, That's right. And, and you think that McDonald's is in the burger business, it's actually in the real estate business and the franchise. Right. Business. And I think the, the biggest problem is most people don't realize what sort of business they're really in. And to me, like, because we, we, we build a platform for this kind of market that has trouble with getting those things together mainly because they need to have those sort of things in place. That's the systems they need to have in place and run their business properly, um, <clears throat> which they're not going to necessarily put in place because of all the myriad of options out there. Um, so why did you sort of pick lawn mowing? Is that, did you see something in it? Like in terms of obviously you're doing landscaping and lawn mowing, there's lots more money in landscaping than lawn mowing, I'm guessing. Um, so why not start a landscaping business instead of a lawn mowing business? Yeah, so... So my first company, Peachtree, that I built to over 150 people and, and 10, 10 million a year in revenue was a maintenance, lawn maintenance and landscaping installation business. So we, we kind of did it all. When I sold it, I retired and I got bored and I thought, okay, now like I don't want to do that hard work again. I want to start an easy business. I'm going to start a software business. Little did I know how hard it was going to be. And and uh, for me, I was kind of solving my own problem. I saw every day how hard it was for 
homeowners to get hooked up with a good lawn mowing service because they would they would call my office every day like 100 people call us they can you come cut my grass and we didn't really do residential work anymore in the latter years of that business no, so we, to, right? <laughs> yeah so we would refer these people to smaller operators like every day so we were kind of in effect like a little connector service mm-hmm. so sold sold that company and then i'm observing you know what's going on in 2013 with uber airbnb lyft uh you know uh, Grubhub, uh, you know, companies that were making like real world, like commerce on a local level, easier and frictionless. And I thought, wow, an app needs to exist for what I just spent the last 15 years doing because it's got all kinds of problems that technology can solve. And, and I, the idea was like the same then eight years ago that it is today. Like the problems we're solving are the same. The vision is the same. Uh, we have approached it a, a thousand different ways and tried a thousand different things, but the vision and the, and the idea is still the, the same thing as it was when we started. What I didn't understand was when you're starting a tech company, most of the time you're, you're inventing something brand new from scratch that does not yet exist. And so that's very different than starting a traditional style of business. So you can go out and start a construction company, you can start a restaurant, you can start a hair salon, you can start a home cleaning business. Yeah, it's something. pretty straightforward. You can kind of you can kind of know what you got to do. You can follow like a roadmap somebody else has built and you can kind of innovate on top of that. But but when you're starting a technology service, uh, most of the time it's brand new. It does not yet exist. And so you're inventing something brand new and you're having to change user behavior. And I didn't understand like the challenges around that when we were getting started because I'd never done it. And the first three years were really, really, really tough. All we did was just beat our heads against the wall. We would get people to try the app and then we would meet with them to try to figure out where where we needed to improve and what they wished the app would do that it didn't. And we just did that over and over and over again and let, and let the customer feedback guide how we were building out the technology. And that's kind of like the, the the methodical way to approach this. Uh, it's, it's, it's really the, 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 the crux of uh, the lean startup and the lean startup methodology is is that customer feedback guides your your process guides your iterative pro- approach and that's what we spent 4 or 5 years doing until we actually built something that people would would use and, and keep using and i'm guessing you probably built it a few times we've rebuilt the thing a thousand times from the inside yeah. out like and that's the thing about it isn't it like you think you're going to i said a lot of people you think you're going to get something right until somebody actually touches it and right. with software, it's the same thing like i took my guys and we developed something i go to use it i go Hang on, this is not going to work because yeah, there, there's there's oh, a there's a quote of that, that I like uh, from an author named Steve Blank, and he says no business plan survives first touch with the customer, <laughs> and and it's true, yeah. and it's like it's kind of like that Mike Tyson quote: everybody's got a plan until they get punched in the nose, and <laughs> and the only way you learn is just to get the the product out there into the wild, into the marketplace, get the minimum viable product that you can, and then and then get feedback around that and just make it better and better and better. Uh, there's just there's just no other way to, to kind of work your way through inventing something from scratch. And I think that's a danger. Like I think a lot of people, I think there's two roads there. One is that you listen to the customer and then do what they say without validating why they're saying it. And so sometimes people will say to you, oh, I want you to do it this way. So I and I remember when I was doing accounting software, this guy came to me once and in Australia we had sales tax. We had before we had GST, which is goods and services tax, which is the flat tax on top of everything. Sales tax was like a tax that they taxed at 22% before the sale. And it was complicated, right? And only certain people paid it and all this sort of stuff. This guy comes to me and I've got accounting software. He said, I want you to change the accounting software to make it charge the tax after, not before. I go, that's illegal. 
<laughs> you might want to go to jail for that, but I don't, right? I'm not, yeah. I'm not going to change it. I'm not going to get anybody to change it because it's obviously going to be a problem. And I think that the danger sometimes is you listen to people, and we have this with clients, they listen to one person say one thing and they think that's the answer when it's yeah, it's opinion. Right. It's tough. It's tough because what do you listen to? What don't you listen to? Mm-hmm. I think in the early days, you have to be looking for patterns and you have to be looking for trends and you have to be looking for like like a predominance of, 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 of things that people want. Otherwise, you'll be building a unique solution for 100 different people, 100 different use cases, and you won't be good to any of them. Yeah. And, uh, and so you kind of have to use a little bit of finesse to understand where do you take it. And if you're getting enough feedback and you're making it dead simple for, for users and customers to give you that feedback, removing all the friction that, that exists between you and your customer so they can easily give you feedback. And that might be live chat on, on every view in the app or website, or it might be your cell number on the product, or it might be an email that hits you up on your phone, whatever. Like make it in the early days really easy for people to give you the feedback because that's free R&D and, mm-hmm. and you're never going to be at a loss for what you need to be focusing the team on because you're constantly getting this river of feedback from the dozen or 100 or 200 or 1,000 people using your product. And that's the interesting thing. I said, the side issue today, um, a friend of mine asked because she actually lost her internet. So she couldn't use a phone's internet, right? And she said, can you give me Telstra's phone number? It's our major Telstra phone provider. I go to the website, they've got no phone number, the phone company with no phone number. This is the major company in Australia. And I had to give them their phone number to find it. So someone's like, you're not thinking, guys. Like, okay, you can go and ask the community. You've got nothing. You know what I mean? Like they just kind of outsource their problems to other people and didn't but- actually provide an actual phone number to call. And so you know, like, don't like they've gone down the Microsoft route. Like Microsoft was king at not getting contacted. Like they, you can never find them in the early days. Still, other day, I reckon they don't have a phone number. Facebook doesn't have a phone number, right? They they hide from you, and you think, how the hell do you get away with that? Because generally speaking, and then you know what happens? People on the websites think they've got to do the same thing. That's and right. That's crazy talk. Because you're not. Happens, no one will contact you. They don't trust you. It's because Facebook has got two billion years and get away without having a phone number. Doesn't mean you can. Um, That's exactly right. And and yeah, they they can get away with it because they have scale and network effects, and mm-hmm. and they've been around for for ten or twenty or hundred years. Yeah. You as the new entrepreneur can't do that. You have it to make it. You know, like that. Dead simple. And the other dead simple. Do, the other interesting thing I have to do with counting software anyway, probably works with everything else, is um, if someone said. Uh, I really want this feature, right? I really got to have this feature in the account. I won't buy it without it. I go, okay, great. So will you use it? If I get it for you, will you use it? They go, no, 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 it's just an idea. <laughs> and I think it required everything. Like you said, to them, yeah, okay, if I do this, will you do it? Okay, will you join? Will you pay money? No, no, no. Okay, what, what, what exactly was this idea? I just make it up stuff. <laughs> That's tough. You know, and, and if, if you're talking to enough people, you know, it might be 12, it might be 50, it might be 100. Mm-hmm. As much as you can, you need you need more data points to understand where you're going to take the focus of the team. Yeah. And uh, there's like, 
it can be really scary when 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 you're kind of just shooting from the hip and, and you're making like you're making bets and and they actually like a bad bet turns out to be right that's mm-hmm. the worst thing that can happen to you because then because then you think that's the way you should do it and you continue to do that and you start making really bad bets the only way to have like confidence around this stuff is to is to get as much of that feedback as you can don't think that you're that you're the 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 telstar or that you're microsoft or google you're not you got to let it be easy for these people to contact you so you understand what you need to be focusing on. And the funny thing about it is like my son showed me a link the other day of all the, all the failed projects of Google that they shut down. They, they archive them, hundreds, right. like, hundreds on a page. And it's like these guys, they're just experiments, right? They're testing That's right. stuff around. They're throwing money at it because they've got the money to throw at it. You don't have that sort of money to throw at mistakes and the experiments like that. You have to kind of not necessarily get it right the first time. It certainly can't be throwing big monies at, at those sort of big mistakes. Absolutely. You know, they're still experimenting too. Um, they're just, they're just making bigger bets, mm-hmm. but like to your earlier point of the accounting software, if you want to create a new piece of accounting software, you know, you, you have to make it easy for those people inside of the app to, to reach you. And, mm-hmm. and you, you just have to remove all that friction because there's like, there's founder logic and there's customer logic and there's a big gap between the two. And the only way to close that gap is just, is just to make it easy for them to tell you what's on their mind. And as much, you get as much of that as you can, it closes the gap between founder logic and customer logic. It was actually interesting when I took over this accounting software business a while now, 15 years ago now, maybe um, we had customer complaints this high, like, you know, printed out a pin a sheet for every complaint was like well over that high and and i thought well i'll get a sales guy to call them to help them because they've obviously got a problem we need to deal with so we rang them up and what we found out was that they needed to pay more money to solve the problem ah (laughs) we turned around from being 19th in the world number 19 in the world in sales to number two in the world in in three years four years because we actually went and asked the customers why they were complaining and what can we do to help them and invariably was to pay money to help them they they were so look you need to upgrade you need to uh, somebody come fix this for you whatever but the reality was most people these complaints were just being sidelined and ignored because right. so many of them they go look we can't do can't deal with this so never would have gotten that insight had you not solicited it yeah yeah and we found out so many so many things and it developed the product that so we then turned around and started developing and said okay well these people want a payment plan and and so we invented monthly cover, which no one had ever had back then. And so I think that's the thing, you know, customer complaints are gold. Like people avoid them. I see them all the time. People complain. And and I've had it, you know, you complain, you fill out this form online, you think, they're never going to call me. No one's ever going to read this. And they never do. Yeah. Like, because they never hear back from anybody. And it's like, well, what did you ask for in the first place? And one thing's ask. But the second thing's, how do you read it? <laughs> right? Yeah. As a new startup, you don't have the luxury to, to, to not to because then you're just you're, you're either going to be lucky or you're going to be wrong with every decision you make. Mm-hmm. And if you're not if you're not soliciting that user feedback, then you're like you're, like you're just kind of shooting from the hip and you're hoping it's going to work out. Hope's a terrible strategy. Yeah, because <laughs> the end of the day, like it, um, some stuff will come good, but the reality is it might not be the good you're hoping for anyway. So. That's right. <laughs> 
So did you, like, I'm assuming you're not a programmer, so you got someone to, to write code for you. How was that fun? Was that fun for you? <laughs> well, you know, actually, so in the early days, we didn't know, my two co-founders and I did not know how to code. And so the first thing we did is we hired a development agency to build what we thought GreenPal should be. Yep. And we spent $150,000 doing that. And we launched it and it was a total failure, unmitigated disaster. Uh, didn't have the features it needed. It was very much of a waterfall type of a style of building the, the the software. So we didn't have like the feedback like baked into the process. And, yeah. and uh, we were quickly confronted with the reality that if we were going to be in the tech business, we were going to have to learn how to build software. Mm -hmm. And so reluctantly, uh, my two co-founders and I learned how to build software. My, my co-founder went to a dev boot camp um, in Nashville, Tennessee, where, where we live. It's a six-month program. He learned just enough to, to build the back end of, of, the, of, the, of the project. I learned how to become a terrible front-end engineer and just good enough to where we could hack together Same. the next version and then just make it better and better and better. And then as time we went on, we started making a little bit of money to where we could then hire uh, developers on an hourly basis. And, and, and only then were we in a position where we could delegate the stuff because we kind of knew a little bit, to go back to the Mario analogy, we yeah. knew just enough to be dangerous to be able to build and delegate. And that's, that's an interesting story because it's kind of similar to what I've had. You know, when you employed an agency to write something, their, their role is to get the job done. The job's, the job's not what you think you're trying to achieve. You're trying to achieve this vision that you've got, and they listen to you, but the reality is they're not. And That's so right. they're basically going, well, how much money can we make out of this? <laughs> and how can we get to the end of this project and maybe get another project? But the reality is they, they want to finish the project and get paid. And so I think the danger is, is that, and it's interesting when you watch like um, Shark Tank and stuff like that, when they bring on these technology companies and, and they ask the question, so who's the technology founder in this company? And they go, oh, we don't have anybody. And they verbally never get an offer because never. inside the business understands the tech. And if you don't understand the tech in this kind of business you're doing, because people will just trick you into the wrong things and then you're doomed. You're doomed. Um, the interests are never aligned when you try to outsource this stuff off the jump. And, and you know, the way I kind of like make sense of it is it's, it's like trying to open up a five star restaurant with no chef. Mm. And you, there's just, your core competency is technology. You have to be able to execute that. You have to be able to iterate that. You know, you have to be able to release eight improvements, 10 improvements, 50 improvements a day. Mm -hmm. And you just can't do this stuff or even hope to do it if you don't know how to do it. And if you're trying to outsource it to a, to a, a freelancer or a shop, I mean, it's just a recipe for disaster. And I was thinking, I was looking at your, I actually had a look at your website. Um, and when you look at your front end, end of your website, it's a bit like, a, I think, a bit like a Facebook. Because the reason why Facebook got so successful is, and you do you do is frictionless, frictionless, right? And that's kind of what Facebook does. It, the sign up Facebook's like, give me your email address and your password and your, in, your name. And that's it. And, and I was looking at your website, I was looking and thinking, okay, that looks, that's pretty simple. There's not much there. And then I sort of had a little dig around. And then I noted, and then I went to, when you sort of sign up to look for someone to mow your lawn, you did a really cute thing, I thought, and that was you showed pictures of three people that could help you, right? That's right. That was incredibly smart because what most people do is that you're facing it. You're saying, well, this is the, this is the sort of person that's going to come do your lawn for you. Um, so you're almost putting it in the future for them. And I thought that was a really cute idea. Um, yeah, one of the 
fun things about trying to start one of these companies is, is you got to get pretty good at product design. And, and uh, we have been in, in, in constant search of the friction to, 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 that stands in the way between our users and the value we can deliver to them. Mm-hmm. And anything that's not necessary, we try to remove and cut out of the process. How do we make it quicker, easier, faster, cheaper, more reliable? And for eight years, we've been focusing on just this one thing, this one chore. How do we make it easier? How do we connect people to the value simpler? simpler and and one of the things is, is removing all the stuff we don't need we don't need a password we don't need to know uh we don't we don't need to know like your work email and we don't need to know your phone number just yet we don't need to know all this stuff like let's just get address name and and where do you want us to send the quotes and that's it and then and then like leaving little breadcrumbs like yeah here's three people that that are in your area that 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 you can probably pick from and just mm-hmm. kind of like 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 this, this really just making it really clear as to what this is. I think if you have a website, you're, it needs to be able to answer three questions in three seconds. Where am I? What can I do here? And why does it matter? And you really only have three seconds to answer those three questions for, for users. And that's what we have focused on. Yeah, no, it's really well done. And I think one of the things that we developed in our software was the curates that hallow them in that and you probably won't, it's quite a lot what you're talking about is that when you sign up and buy something and we get something for free, there's multiple steps in it, and then often, often you've got a membership login, so you'll wait for an email to come. So you basically sign up, fill out this information, nothing happens on the screen. You say, thank you very much, we'll come back to you. And then basically you get this email. If you get lucky, you know, the half time it ends in spam, you never get it. And then you have no one to contact, there's no contact options in the thank you page, of course, because God forbid you want them to ring them. And so we actually created what we call one-click um, one sign up. So basically, they choose the product. If it's free, one click and then in, the password's done, it's emailed to them later, but they're inside the system ready to go. And if off the one click. And I think, if you look at that, that's the thing. You know, how many clicks to the to the point where they've got to do something? And I reckon if you click more than three times, you, you've got some problems because they will get lost quick. <laughs> that's right. you yeah. got to find all the friction and kill it. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, one of the things you got to get pretty good at to use the Mario analogy is copywriting. You know, uh, I spent probably six months taking every copywriting course I could find, get my hands on and, and trying to learn as much as I could about how to write really clear copy. Because believe it or not, little tweaks in your copy on the landing page to the sign up flow to the to the checkout, like, you know, just little tweaks can unlock huge gains and and understanding, you know, kind of how you have to craft your copy and craft your value proposition is a never ending process. And so mm-hmm. as the founder, you kind of have to be decent at this stuff to, to get it right the first time as much as you can and then be able to hire somebody good to help you and know what good looks like. Like you don't even know what the hell you're looking for if you haven't tried to do a little bit of it yourself. And actually, I've got a client at the moment, a very similar scenario. We we originally co- essentially wrote all the copy for his, his Healthy Heart Network site. And, and it wasn't great. Like, copy was good, but not good. Not strong enough. But And and now we've taken and given to a copywriter, say, okay, you need to improve on this. You need to make it sound better. You need to – but we know where we're coming from. We're coming off a base, you know, like a first – almost a first draft or second draft scenario because that's all the copywriter right. will give you back. The only things a lot of people say, oh, I'll go and hire a copywriter. I'll sort of tell you what, the first thing you get back is for their first draft. Um, which is not the, you know, which you're then going to have to make work for yourself anyway. Right. So better to give them the first draft and let them fix it. Then you pay all this money back for the same thing you would have got anyway. Exactly. And you can do 80% of this stuff yourself. Like the whole 80-20 rule, you can execute 80% of anything with 20% of the knowledge mm-hmm. and 20% of the acumen. 
And you got to get good at 80, 20 uh, of, of copywriting, of product design, of engineering, of marketing, of SEO or whatever. You got to get 80, 20 good at all this stuff to, to get something going from scratch. It's actually good. And it's like, it was interesting. I went to Singapore a few years ago and I got in this taxi and the whole Singapore um, culture is very interesting. It talks about good enough, acceptable. Right. Is the word. Everything's got to be acceptable. So if it's below acceptable, it's no good. So they even have a system where they, they allow to park and they have their own little card and they punch the card out when they park. It's built on the trust system. I like so, it. Right? Because the entire life, the whole community is centered around about acceptable. This is acceptable. It's unacceptable to park and not clip your thing because then you're cheating someone. Right. The whole culture is, 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 is based around that principle. I love that. You know, there's so many things you can learn from that. Uh, even in the culture in your business, what is the standard, you know, what's, acceptable, the- what's not acceptable. Right. And, and it was funny because like they're, they're checking, I went through their business class in, in Singapore to get from Singapore through to South Africa and their entire business check-in process from the moment you walked up to the desk, to be sitting in the lounge with three minutes. And three incredible. Minutes. Right, that's acceptable. Yeah. <laughs> like, imagine what, what would be superior, right? That that was acceptable to them that it took three minutes because and you spent half the time walking up the escalator. Yeah. So, <laughs> you know, like, well, I think that's the thing, you know. I love that concept. Yeah, you have to get acceptably good at all of these things mm-hmm. in order that's to bring right. one of these companies not, to life. Not super great at it because your ego will beat you down every time. I think the biggest thing and biggest danger in business, I think, is ego. Absolutely. Yeah. Ego is the enemy of, of trying to get a business going and, and yeah, get humbly, acceptably good at product design, engineering, all of these things, because you got to be decent at all of it. And, and you don't have enough time to try to master one of these things. Maybe you're naturally good at one of them, but you still kind of have to like, it's almost like a T like you, like you can go deep on one maybe, but then you got to be good at all the rest of the stuff. Yeah, exactly. And so let's talk about the business you got now. So one of the things that um, a lot of entrepreneurs think of is that when they go into business, they're going to sell it. And what? And I worked for a bank for 12 years. And what I discovered mostly is most people never sell anything at the time they want to sell it. They sell it for other reasons, whether they're going broke or sick, marriage, break up, whatever. Something's going wrong in their life and then they're trying to sell their business. And so very rarely is someone to actually sell a business on plan and, and what they're doing. So is Greenpal a business vehicle for you to eventually sell is that was the original plan when you went in is that the strategy given that you've sold the business before right? trying to replicate yeah I, I sold my first company and i came at the decision to sell it because i had kind of plateaued from like a personal development standpoint running it and i, I know it was no longer fulfilled by the 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 day-to-day kind of challenges of running it i didn't really kind of conquer the landscaping business but i built one of the largest companies in the state of tennessee where i live and and i kind of plateaued personally at it for about a two-year period of time and so that's where i came up with that's when you actually get dangerous in business when you plateau and start coming down then you're gonna you're gonna tank the business (laughs) that's right yeah you're no longer kind of like your soul isn't in it anymore you're no longer being fulfilled uh in it and so that's kind of what i experienced with my first company and I haven't experienced that yet with Green Pal. You know, like we're eight years in and I mean, every year it's just a, it's like a video game. It's like you, you go from one level to the next and there's a new final boss at the every, at every level. And, and it's always a new set of challenges and it's always interesting. There's always stuff that you got to learn and always skills that you have to acquire. And so I haven't experienced that. And, you know, you know, financially, you know, this was the company that I wanted to start, you know, 
because it's, I did it the way I wanted to do it. I didn't have to like do it a certain way to satisfy investors or, or satisfy, you know, some, some sort of like uh, personal ego in terms of money. I kind of have built this thing the way I wanted to build it. Cause I wanted to see it like be a certain thing. And, and uh, so, you know, I mean, never say never, but for us, you know, it's not, it's not in the immediate plans. We, we still have a long, long way to go. Just in the United States, the lawn mowing industry is, is a, the landscaping industry is a $99 billion industry. The top 10 players constitute less than, than 10% of that. So it's highly fragmented. And so there's a lot of white space for us. So we have a long way to go. Even though we're eight years in and, and we've, we've got a good profitable company, we still have a long way to go. So it's actually interesting. It's sort of a story that I, um, when I first, I don't, I did some researching because I've got this client, the lawnmower client, did some research, and I worked out why do people have lawns, right? Yeah, the history of lawns. A lawn is largely useless, right? It's a piece of grass that you pay to mow, and it's like you don't, know, you know, you think the kid, the kids never play in it because half the time it's too itchy. You think, why do you got a lawn? And I worked out apparently back in the in the like in England and stuff like that, the the, the size of your lawn was the size of your wealth. So ah, nice. So you walk and drive around the streets and stuff like that, and you look at people's lawns, you can tell whether they're wealthy or what their priorities are like because they've got a beautiful lawn. You think, well, okay, something's going on in their life, right? So I'm that sure go for the best lawns, right, because <laughs> they know they've got the good stuff. I like that. It was that. quite interesting, but the other reason for lawns was that, um, particularly in the in uh, England, the bigger the yards they had, one was a show of wealth and strength, but also you could see the, the enemy coming. Ah, <laughs> uh, it was it was clear, and so you you saw yeah, so it was yeah. Ah, I didn't know that. That's very interesting. So it was like a sign of wealth and strength, and also it yeah. was like a tactical advantage. Yeah, yeah. So I mean, today's the, the, the houses today. You know, you haven't got much time between the front front yard and the backyard because your house is pretty small. But when I look at it, like in my street, for example, half my street look after their lawn. I mean, I don't touch my lawn because I, I just don't have time and I figure I'm going to do something better than my lawn. If you enjoy it, great, but otherwise not. Um, but And so the, the back end of the street is, is all the lawns are good. The front end of the street, the lawns are bad. <laughs> I walk past every day. So when I'm walking around, I'm looking at people's lawns and going, hmm, I wonder what, you know, I'm talking, you can tell a lot of people about their lawn. And I've got one guy's lawn we pass by, he's killed it completely. Like it's dead. Like he's actually dug it up. It's just dirt. I'm thinking, what are you doing with this lawn, man? Like, and it's like bizarre. So I think the lawn tells you a lot about people. So you start looking at their lawn, you think, wow, what are these people thinking? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, it's, it's something about pride and ownership of your home. And if your lawn looks good, actually, it does affect the resale value. And and I like it. I like like your analogy of it. It is a status symbol of sorts, you know. And Whereas, you know, a lot of the users of our platform are working class folks. They, they've, they've done the math on by the time I buy a lawnmower, I mow it myself and I deal with all of the, the hassle. I'm making less than minimum wage. I might as well use GreenPal and, and I can get it mowed for, for 30 bucks. And, yeah. and so uh, now it's become more of like a practical chore. Mm. Um, but it's funny, the origins, it was a status symbol. And it certainly yeah. can be like a, like a perfectly manicured golf course lawn. It's not cheap. No, no. I mean, I, I had a client, I, mate, I went and saw you a few years ago, and I went to his lawn. It's like that thick, green, lush. Yeah. Right? He hand mows it, right? So this guy is like, you know, super Murray. <laughs> he's, like he's hand mowing, he's hand mowing this lawn, and he's got this thing super lush. And I said, man, that's the best lawn I've ever seen. Like, and it's like, yeah, you know, that she spends hours on it, but he gets something out of it, right? Think, yeah, oh, yeah, certainly a hobby for some folks. Not me. I've mowed enough yards in my day. I, I, yeah, I, don't, I don't enjoy it. <laughs> a piece of grass. 
So um, I guess if you're going to start in, like, always I'd say, what's the advice of the younger self, right? If you're going to start something like, a, say, a tech business or, or and, and sometimes it's just a little bit of tech around your business. It doesn't have to be a big amount of tech, but I think looking at your business and thinking, how can I do it better than someone else? And to me, it's how can I automate it? How can I make it better for my customers? Sometimes that's just a little thing. So what do you think is the best thing in terms of, say you've got this brilliant idea, and what's the first thing you should do outside not hiring a developer straight out of the gate? Because that's what I see what people do. It's a great idea. Sign an NDA, which I've, I don't know why people have NDAs because as soon as you sign the NDA, you never get the deal. Um, and so, you know, what do you think that, they, that their kind of step should be if they have a brilliant idea and they want to go and do something? Yeah, you know, I think entrepreneurship's full of dichotomies. And one of them is, you know, you, you have to have this huge ambitious goal, this big thing, this big thing you're trying to like conquer and, and, and accomplish. But you also have to think and act very, very, very small. And so the smaller you can distill down the things you're you're actually working on, the things you're actually doing, and you're doing them, then that kind of expands your, your little circle of influence. And so step one is like to, to spend less time planning and more time doing. And so like, what are the two or three things you can do and accomplish this week to get you closer to, to getting a product going? And, and so that might be, you know, that might be you, 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 you use some of these low code and no code options and, and you would get together a prototype and you get that in the hands of, of 10 people. And then you can learn uh, about what you actually have to build. And all along, along the, along the lines, you're, you're learning how to build software as you go, like you're taking online courses and, and whatnot, because you're going to have to learn how to build software at some point. Um, and so that maybe that's what it is. It's like whatever, like the like the, the two or three little things you can do today mm-hmm. to close the gap between where you want to be and where you and where you are. I think is is the best thing. Like less time planning and more time doing. Less time like theorizing and more time executing is is a mistake that I've made and a mistake that I see pretty much every new entrepreneur make. Mm, yeah, because I think in your head it doesn't take as long. When you get to a program, it takes twice as long and costs twice as much. That's right. That's right. And you don't learn anything until you get something in the hands of people. So figure out like what the minimum set of things you need. Let's get that done. Let's get it in the hands of people. And it's pretty, it's like a fundamental principle of the universe. Like, like I, 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 I take classes in MMA and, and we tie fighting and, and the only way to learn how to fight is to spar, to get in there and actually spar. And, and business is kind of like that too. The only way to learn about what you're actually doing is a spar with the customer almost. And I don't mean that like in a, in a antagonistic way, but I mean like they have to interact with something. They have to beat up against something. If not, you're not going to learn anything. I think it's the same as driver's license, right? When my son was pretty good at gaming and he thought, I can drive this car. And yeah, said, absolutely not. <laughs> you start this thing, you go, my God, how, how can I even control this thing? To right. Where the tires are. And so yeah. I think the thing is, like I told him, like, you know, I, I, you know, he hasn't been driving long enough to know where the tires are. So I think when, when you, you know exactly the framework of your car. And I parked the other day and it's like far off the wall. And he's going, how did you know that? And I said, because I know where the tires are. <laughs> yeah, you got to know where the tires are in business. Yeah. <laughs> if, if not, you, you know, you're going to crash and burn. Yeah, exactly. So I think it's, <laughs> and that, yeah, you're right. You know, if you do it, and, and we've been doing the same with our software. Like, we, we've had a client that we kind of rode around it. So, because we think, well, this is a client, an ideal client. So, we picked the client we knew would need all these things, even though we didn't know we needed them. And, and so, over time, we built those things and made it work. So, one of the things that we did was a silly thing, but 
Um, when we sell an ebook, we allow only one ebook to be put in the cart. Because why would you want to buy 10 ebooks? His market is 60 year old, 70 year old people who don't read screens, right? Because no, let's make it simple. (laughs) Make it as simple as it possibly can be. Yeah, something like that that we discovered by 60, 70 year olds people hitting that plus button 10 times and then complaining they built 10 times of an ebook. Exactly. You you would have never known that if it had not gotten into their hands. You got to get something in people's hands. Mm. All right, cool. All right, so um, so Green Pal is only in the U.S. Like you haven't got plans for global domination, is there? Only in the U.S. right now. We're in every major city, in the United States, but soon we will be in Canada, U.K., and Australia, probably in the next year or two. Nice. Uh, and so uh, we're we're nailing it. Then we're going to scale it. Uh, but uh, we'll we'll be international. Soon that. I think I've read it. <laughs> it's a good book. <laughs> I think we've read all the same books. <laughs> yeah. Hey, you got to read the books. Uh, Lord knows, uh, I w- I wouldn't have gotten this far if I had not read every, every book I get my hands on. Yeah, and and I like the idea of taking getting physically because I think at the end of the day it's a much more reminder that you got to read them because I've got about I'm reading about ten books at once at the moment. So they need, you need to be tripping over them. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> so really appreciate your time um and we'll put up a link of green for people to have a look at i think if nothing else is to learn something because i think if they look at your website and go well you know what are the principles here i think it's a good exercise in in what you should do because i think it's really well done and um i really appreciate your your, your feedback and your ideas and i hope to talk to you again soon john thanks so much for having me on i enjoyed it